Good morning. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Genesis chapter 50. I'm not preaching from 50. Um, <clears throat> as those of you who've been walking through this series with me, you know that we're at 37. Um, but it's been a while since we've been in this series. And so my hope is to uh, come back to Genesis, but we're going to spend a little bit of time remembering the framework of where we're at and, uh, and then where we're going from there. On September 15th, 2019, PCBC began a journey together, a journey through the book of Genesis. We started a study in the book of Genesis, and we knew that this would be quite an undertaking, but I remember announcing and as I even announced that, we were going to take up that study thinking, I wonder how many years this will be. Because I don't know. I'm not, I'm not that kind of guy. I'm not that type of person that plans out a calendar for, for preaching. I like to take it as it comes and work through it with you. But on that first Sunday, I shared three reasons that were in my heart why Genesis. I want to give those to you again. The greatest need we have is to truly know God, to know Him. That was one of my reasons why I wanted us to go to Genesis. As I believe that book, in particularly, reveals much about the character and nature of our Lord. Number two was, in a world where God's design is absolutely under attack, this book, in particular, runs to the rescue of God's people. Now, <clears throat> I believed that when we started the series. I believe it's so much more, now that we've gone through 36 chapters of this book, that this book is an absolute pivotal book to have clear in our thinking. But what I've found so fascinating, beloved, is as I look out into our world and I look at the attacks on the church, how many of those, how many of those attacks are coming at God's design at the very creation of this world. And so the book of Genesis has been a godsend in many ways, but in particular just to see that and go, yeah, that was his design from the get-go. Why would I be surprised that this fallen world would go after God's design? And then number three was... My prayer was that we would glorify our God in the study, understanding, and obedience of the, of the truth found in this book of foundations. There's a lot of questions that are being posed to many of you, to all of us, but to many of you on personal notes in reference to all kinds of stuff, in reference to marriage, gender, male-female relationships, sin, salvation, all kinds of things. And as I continue cho just chopping away, working through this book, I come away each week thinking, man, I just did not anticipate the application to be so profoundly on point with our world. Shame on me. So what I want to do this morning is I want us to kind of cover, fly over what we've covered I'm going to preach 36 chapters. <clears throat> it's okay, because then I'm going to preach the rest of the book after that. So 
We're going to look at 36 chapters and just, just the highlights, kind of the touchstones of Genesis. Because what I've come away from, you guys, is um, it, it, it works with anything. It works with, with um, firearms. It works with driving. It works with you fill in the blank. When there's something new that is put in front of you and somebody says, now, I want you to master it, you take it and you start to go, okay, and you fumble a little bit, right? So I'm thinking, a new believer, you hand him the Bible, you go, where should I read? Well, kick off with Genesis. It's the beginning, why not? So he starts reading through that. And you start to get a little layout of, okay, now I have an understanding of this world didn't happen from a cosmic accident, but... There's actually a design, there's a designer, there's a God who made it, and then you start working through the book. You finish Genesis and you come away going, wow, I didn't know, I didn't know the foundations, but now that makes sense. You go back again, you read through that book, you go, man, how did I miss that, right? Fast forward 45 years, man, how did I miss that? You just keep working through the book and mastering it. Beloved, my desire is that all of us would master the Word in general, the whole Bible, master the Word of God. So that way, right now, if I put a piece of paper in front of you, you give me a nice outline of Amos, instantly. And if I call you to turn to hesitations, you never turn. You don't even get your Bible. (laughs) But that you have a mastery of the Word of God. But I will say, through this series... I've been freshly convicted, Genesis is a book to master. To have this book down pat, to have it clear in your mind what each chapter has in it, so that way you could potentially, chapter 1 has this, chapter 2 has this, chapter 3 has this, that book, because it is a book of foundations, and so much of the rest of the word is affected the way you read and interpret this one. Somebody asked me, or we were asking in youth group a couple weeks ago, our favorite books of the Bible. My favorite book of the Bible is always the book that I'm preaching through. It's just the way it works. And that's just because of the fresh insight and fresh love for what's in that. Well, Genesis has been profoundly impacting. Like the rest of my life, the rest of my ministry, impacting. Genesis simply means beginnings, the date roughly 1445 B.C., The author Moses, you see Jesus consistently and the apostles consistently make reference to the Old Testament scriptures, the first five books as the books of Moses. So here's some foundations. Now I'm going to read through this, you guys. It's a a little bit lengthy, but it's important to go, oh yeah, oh okay, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, I remember that. Creation, the fall of man, Cain and Abel, Noah and his ark, and the flood. The Tower of Babel, God's call and promise with Abraham, Abraham and Lot separated, God's covenant made with Abraham, the Hagar affair, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the foretelling of the birth of Isaac, or foretelling and birth of Isaac, the almost sacrifice of Isaac, Sarah's death and burial, Isaac and Rebekah's marriage and their family, Abraham's death, the Jacob and Esau feuds, Jacob flees to Laban, Jacob takes Leah, and then Rachel and their maidservants, 
And then a number of, of chapters and verses about Jacob's maturing, his wrestling with God, and his name changed to Israel. Jacob's return to the land, and Jacob's children by the four women, and the twelve sons who will be the twelve tribes of Israel. The book can be broken down by looking at the, the phrase, the generations of. And you have the generations of Adam, the generations of Noah, the generations of the sons of Noah, of Shem, Terah, Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, Jacob. But much, much detail is given to Abraham and Joseph. That is a mountain of material that we've been looking through together, studying together. Um, and the, the tough part for the preacher is when you do that, I always come away going, man, there's so much more it could have been done, should have been done. Um, so as soon as we finish, we're going to go back to... Ch- no, we won't do that. <clears throat> but it's a book, beloved, that um, I do encourage you, go through it. Outline it. Master it. Remember, the best part about mastering the Word of God is as you're mastering it, it he's actually mastering you with his word. So that's what we've covered thus far. That's the terrain that we just flew over with all of the little bits and pieces. Remember, there's things I didn't even mention. Remember Lot and his daughters? Remember that sermon? I sure do. That was a very tricky one. There have been passages where I've looked at it on Monday and thought, man, well, Tuesday, and I thought, man, what am I going to do with this? How am I going to, how does this preach? What do, how do I bring this before the body? And the Lord in his grace has been so kind week in, week out to feed his people. Well, now we're going to look at what's, in, what's ahead of us. So we looked what's behind us, and I want to show you kind of where we're going to be. My intent is to just give the rest of the year to Joseph. That could be, that could not be. Maybe we'll finish before the year. Maybe 2024 we'll celebrate by still studying Joseph. I don't, I don't know the answer, and I don't really care. Um, but we're going to be looking through the life of Joseph. So let me just give these to you. And if you do, beloved, have a familiarity with Genesis, this won't surprise you. You'll know this, but here's some touchstones. It kicks off with us being told about Joseph, the second to the youngest son of Jacob, about his dreams regarding his family, which goes over great with his brothers. But it's okay, because his dad helps. He gives him a coat of many colors and shows great favoritism. So We have the attempted murder of Joseph as they throw him in a pit, decide, no, never mind, pull him out, and he's sold into slavery. Then eventually he's purchased by Potiphar, and Potiphar's uh, wife seeks to seduce him, and Joseph is an honest, godly man who says no and abstains, and so she lies about him, and then he's put in prison. Dream interpretation, God gives him the gift of dream interpretation in that prison. Eventually, he interprets Pharaoh's dreams, and Joseph rises to power, from ashes to glory, so to speak. Interactions with his brothers, eventually a great famine happens. The brothers come down to get food, and Joseph is now put in the place that his dreams were telling him about, where his his brothers come down, and he is now, they're stuck with a decision to make. So what he ends up doing at first is he tests his brothers by having them bring his youngest brother, Benjamin, down. And this is a very interesting sequence of events between he and the brothers. And what has always struck me about those events 
is the tenderness of the heart of Joseph towards his brothers throughout it. Is he angry? Yeah. Revenge? I would imagine some of that's their lingering, a, a desire. And yet weeping, profound movement in his emotions in reference to his brothers. Eventually, Joseph selflessly provides for his brothers. Joseph is instrumental in saving many lives in a famine. And then he buries his father. And then Joseph shows supernatural mercy to his brothers. I think it's interesting that we're here. This, this, this strikes me probably more than you is because, honestly, you guys, and I've shared this with you before, when, when I was deciding where to go after um, our previous series of Christ in the Old Testament, I think that was the last one we did, coming to, my thought process was I wanted to do something in the life of Joseph. I wanted to go through the whole life of Joseph. And I just kept looking at the chapter before and then before and then before and then before. So um, the, the, the brief study in the life of Joseph has become a four-year series in Genesis. So there we are. Now what I want to do is give you this this morning. For the rest of our time in this book and in the life of Joseph, I want to give you a particular lens to look through it, to look through as we go through it. Okay, so this is something I want you to have as like a a decoder ring or something in your pocket that you pull out each Sunday, and the text that I handle that we study through together, you put that lens over that chapter or over that passage, and it's a consistent guidepost throughout the study. Okay, so the lens to read the life of Joseph through. Turn with me to Genesis 45. I've got a few verses I want to just show you, and you'll get the idea pretty quick. Isaiah, or Genesis chapter 45, this is the text that Brother Mark read for us. Verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry, and go up to my father, and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph. Imagine how that landed on Jacob's heart. God has made me Lord of Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. Genesis 50. Genesis chapter 50. So so think carefully about what's going through the minds of the brothers, okay? When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, 
They said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they, so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants, identical to the dream that he had so long ago. Verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. Simultaneously, but God meant it for good. And you need to define the it in that statement. What did he mean? Well, I think he meant the evil intent of the brothers. I lost my place. Hang on a second. There we go. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Romans chapter 8. And I could just quote this outright, but the sound of your Bible pages is marvelous. So Romans chapter 8, verse 28. A very well-known text, quoted often. The Apostle Paul says, and we know. That is so pivotal. We know. We know this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. I'm building a foundation here, guys, so just just stick with me. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 11 says, In him, Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. Okay, so predestined according to the purpose of him, I believe the Father, who works most things. Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And then I'll, I'm just going to turn to the last verse that I have here. Psalm 115, verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. Genesis 45, Genesis 50, Romans 8, Ephesians 1. Psalm 115, and I could just multiply and multiply and multiply. There's a common theme throughout these passages. It's a common theme that actually is throughout the entire Bible. And so the lens I want to hand to you is the lens of God's providential work in the midst of circumstances, bringing things ultimately to his good end. 
God's providential work in the midst of circumstances, bringing it to his ultimate end. Here's another definition of this phrase or this term providence. It's not in the Bible, but it's a doctrine, an understanding of a teaching in the Word of God. Providence is God's superintending activity over human actions and human history, bringing creation to its divinely determined end. This is from a old pocket dictionary that I have. I want to read it one more time. I love this definition. God's superintending. So you think of a little kid making a peanut butter and jelly, right? And you see, parent, you see parental hands come up over the little hands, right? Because you don't mix peanut butter with jelly. That's nasty. It's kind of like breadcrumbs in the butter. Oh, and yet I do it so often. Okay, so... Enough about the Mason household. God's superintending activity over human actions and human history, bringing creation to its divinely determined end. And then here's a Dan Mason definition. Providence is when God is absolutely at work in the natural day-to-day events of life, especially in apparent difficult circumstances. There's your lens. Now, as we read through the, the study or the, the, the storyline of, of Joseph and we see all that takes place, there will be times in the study where we go, oh, those brothers. Oh, you're terrible. You kidding? It takes that many to take this, this kid and throw him in a pit and then pull him out, and you don't care, you don't care at all for your brother. The gift that your dad gave to him, you're going to tear it up and get animal blood on it and say, sorry, dad, I guess an animal took Yeah, a bunch of animals took him out. And there's times where you can read the story and you go, oh, so irritating. Why didn't those guys remember after he interpreted their dreams for him? Potiphar's wife, you go, I can't believe she'd be like, I, I just, how could Potiphar just, let it happen. He knows she's wrong. This isn't the first time this has happened. And yet Joseph is lied about. Pure before the Lord. And God just lets him suffer there. There's times you're going to wrestle with that throughout this study. And it's good to. We're supposed to. Because the apparent circumstances in the life of Joseph look horrible at times. Imagine this. <clears throat> Joseph is down at the bottom of the well and the brothers walk away, and some Christian walks by and goes, hey, all things work together for good, brothers. (laughs) Thanks! And yet, and yet, absolutely true. See, that's the irony here, you guys, is that in the midst of pain, it's a hard truth to say, I know that's true. But it doesn't change whether it's true. It is true. Now, as you walk through the life of Joseph, I think the most, one of the most potent, powerful aspects of the life of this guy is that at the end of a good portion of his life, he's the one that points to God's sovereignty. He's the one that directs people's attention to God's providence. Nobody tells Joseph, Joseph, I know you're having a bad day, I know you're frustrated, blah, 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 but God's still in control. Nobody says that to him. He says it to them. The guy suffering says it, which has tremendous power. 
When you see somebody going through a really difficult set of circumstances and their response to you is, I'm just trusting God through this. I know that he has a great plan. I know he's in charge of all things. He knows all things. And he is sovereign over absolutely everything. So I'm just going to trust him in this. Doesn't it hurt? Doesn't that, that cancer hurt? Yeah, the treatment's going kind of rough. Aren't you, aren't you having a tough time sleeping? Oh, yeah, there's some pain in my back. Right, isn't that relationship struggling? It is. Isn't it tough that your kids would rebel against you? Oh, yeah. But in it, I still see him. In it, he's still at work. See, there's, there's power when the person is in the fire, and they're the ones telling everybody, I'm trusting him, because I know who he is. I know what he's accomplishing. I know what he's about. Beloved, just consider the force of the theological argument from Joseph to those who sought to throw him in a pit and then sell him out. For him to look them in the face and say, just hold on a sec, guys. You're fine. Not only that, I'm going to provide for you and for your family. I'll take good care of you. Really? No revenge? No. God will take care of that. How could you have that kind of mindset? Because what you meant for evil, in the depths of your heart, the evil in your heart, you are not without guilt here, gentlemen. But in that evil, that intent, God intended good. And the cool part is they could say, what good? Well, I'm like a dad to Potiphar around here now. God has put me in an incredible position. Many lives have been spared because of God's grace to me, and now even your lives and now my father's life. It's all going to be spared. Do you see God's profound action in the midst of his people? You could knock him over with a feather. When you see somebody relent and show mercy when everybody around is expecting a good, fierce revenge. It causes everybody to ask some questions. And Joseph doesn't skip a beat. That's why I wanted to make reference so strongly to that word, it, because he says, what you meant for evil against me, God meant it for good. So, as we study the rest of this book, I want you to go back to 50-20 and just hit it every Sunday. Really? In the midst of that, 50-20. Really? In the midst of that, 50-20. I'm just going to say it over and over and over again, 50-20, 50-20. You go, but, but I thought the brothers are being horrible here. Yeah, and they'll be held accountable, 50-20. You will consistently go back to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, and you will consistently say to yourself, Okay, there are moments where I do not know how he's in control and working things all together for good. But I know he is. See, beloved, we don't know the future, but we know who's in charge of it. And that should bring incredible comfort. Joseph, in the end, points to God's intentions driving the doing of his brothers. Now, uh, here's, here's a piece of providence that I want you to notice, is that from a, say it's an unbeliever who's, who's watching Joseph's life. We'll say he was a college roommate. I don't know why, but we'll just say so. And this college roommate is consistently watching Joseph's life. What could he chalk it up to? 
karma, luck, good guys finish last. I mean, you think about all the silly things you've heard in this world. When, when unsaved people are doing their best to do what they can with the circumstances and with that which is happening in front of them. They're trying to, to wrap their arms around, how is this all working this way in this guy's life? The answer is Joseph points to God's intentions driving in this whole situation. And what is so moving is that you see perhaps a couple things that are supernatural, particularly, say, the... Um, uh, sorry, what blank? Um, the dream interpretation. The Lord just gives that to Joseph. I mean, that's, that's, that's supernatural, clear. I get that. But for the most part, day-to-day, mundane stuff. The guy's in jail. His brothers are jealous. There's favoritism in the family. I mean, how boring, right? You've got to spice up Hallmark movies more than that to make it interesting. And yet, what we're being told, you guys, is that in the day-to-day, apparent, difficult circumstances, the sovereign of the universe is weaving it together to bring it to his perfect end. Now, here's where I want to just confront you, okay? I believe that with all of my heart. It's been tested a bit in my life but nowhere near as much as some other saints in this room and in the halls of history of the church. I want you to consider this profoundly. I want you to consider this deeply. Do you believe that? Before God, would you say, I really believe that Almighty God is sovereignly, providentially at work in my midst accomplishing his good purpose? Do you believe that? Because here's the tricky part. At times, Christians will try to get God off by saying, oh, he had nothing to do with this. Where does that leave you? Good. Therefore, I'm in no man's land. And there is no God. So I'm just left up to the pure circumstances and chance. You see, that utterly unbiblical, and I would say utterly discouraging. Rather, what I see in the Word of God is that consistently the thought process is the Lord has a purpose in your midst in this time. Now, I'm not not just saying in suffering. I'm saying in all things. Remember, the text says he is working all things together for good. It does not say all things are good. Okay, Huge difference there. Um, Was there evil in the heart of his brothers? Of course, oh yeah. Was there favoritism shown by the dad? Yeah, yeah. Was there favoritism shown in his parents? Yeah, remember that? Jacob, he saw that whole debacle? Yeah. But in the midst of those evil intentions, we're told that Almighty God is superintending, working towards his good purpose. I pray with all my heart you believe that, because I have watched Christians endure suffering, holding to that truth and seeing it sustain them. And I've seen Christians who absolutely deny that truth, And step out on their own, saying, well, the Lord's not even in this. Really? I love you guys. 
The thought, the thought of you going through some set of circumstances that just wipes you out, and for you to say, the Lord's not in this, is just, I couldn't imagine. I couldn't imagine watching you do that. This is, this is a glue, a super glue, just holds everything together going, man, this hurts. But he's right there. And I don't know, and I may never know on this side of glory, what he's doing. But I know from the pure word of God, he is doing. And so my challenge to you, my confrontation with you, is that if you are A, you don't believe that, or B, you don't care, and it hasn't even come into your thinking, I challenge you, wrestle with this. Because this is not a mere theme in the life of Joseph, okay? This is a lens that I'm handing you that perhaps you've had this lens many, many years before I was ever born, and you've read the Word of God consistently through that lens and praise Him. But beloved, this is actually a lens for the entirety of your Bible. You can look at the life of Job. And you know who kicks that off? I think, Link, you pointed this out to me a couple weeks ago, that God who brings up Job to the enemy. Satan doesn't say, hey, I've been watching Job. No, he says, have you considered my servant Job? What? It's there. I I find Job and, and look, it's there. Abraham. Man, we have really seen God's superintending purpose in the life of Abraham. Moses, what a weird life. What a weird life, and yet you see God superintending once again. You see David, all the hardships in David's life, the difficulties, and yet again you see the Lord's work, Solomon, all over the place. And what's so fascinating to me, one I've, I would argue one of the best Uh, guidings or guideposts throughout seeing God's providence and superintending is the line of Christ throughout the Old Testament scriptures. As you look to see who's in that man's family tree, and you see how everything comes together in such a very, very fascinating way, you go, there's no way this is chance. There's no way. There's no way this is coincidence. This is the superintending of Almighty God working things according to his good purpose. This is not merely a lens to use in the life of Joseph, but one used in the study of all of God's holy word. Let me kick it one more step, and then we'll come to his table. The truth of God's superseding in the flow of human history is not simply one to leave in the pages of your Bible. Romans 8.28, Ephesians 1.11. This is a truth that we can absolutely take to heart for ourselves and the doings of our own lives. The Lord is at work in this world accomplishing His good purpose. Now see, this is where it, this is where it really lands. Is as long as it's Joseph's story, biography, I'm comfy with that. As long as it's David's story, I'm comfy with that. As long as it's Solomon's story, all right, good, I got to see the end. That's, that's great that that was the end result. What about Dan's story? 
I'll be 38 at the end of the month, okay? Young guy, raising a family, young pastor. I have no idea what kind of pain is in front of me, what kind of suffering is in front of me. I don't know. I don't know what the Lord might do. I don't know what kind of gut-wrenching struggles await. But I do know without a shadow of a doubt that God's word tells me in whatever comes about, I have the Lord superintending those events working towards his good purpose and as painful as they may be, I know that somebody's in control of it all. So, beloved, let me give you one last passage of Scripture for you to chew on. Coming from the mouth of King Nebuchadnezzar. Turn to Daniel. Daniel chapter 4. Verse 34. Listen very, very carefully to what is said here. Chapter 4, verse 34 says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And look at that. Isn't that fascinating? As soon as his reason comes back, he finds from his heart blessing the Most High. I bless the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For, here's a declarative statement about Almighty God. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and just for good measure, and none can stay his hand. Well, that's kind of how it works when you have control over heaven and earth. Or say to him, what have you done? That is the word of God's declaration about God's sovereignty. And I bow to it. There's a lot of yeah buts, and I know that, you guys. Lots of questions about, yeah, but what about this? What about that? How does this work? How does that work? I know, I know. I'm with you. And for another time, you can wrestle with that, but just let the word speak. Let God's word just declare who he is today, that that's true. And I bend my knee to it. What else can you do? You can deny it, but it's still true. You can wrestle with it, but it's still true. You can surrender to it, and it remains true. And guys, as we come to the Lord's table, how many minute details were needed to be rightly aligned for Jesus Christ to go to that cross in that moment? Coincidence? I think not. The sovereign superintending of Almighty God aligned all of human history, all of human history. So in that moment, the Son of God says, it is finished. At the exact nanosecond, he was predetermined to say that word.
How many variables are under his sovereign control for that to happen in that second? Our Father...